0: pray as we come to god's word our father we thank you that all scripture is god breathed and is useful for teaching rebuking correcting and training in righteousness father open our hearts to receive your word that we may know you better and be thoroughly equipped for every good work through your son our lord jesus amen to samuel chapter 2 In the course of time, David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go up to one of the towns of Judah? He asked. The Lord said, Go up. David asked, Where shall I go? To Hebron, the Lord answered. So David went up there with his two wives, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. David also took the men who were with him, each with his family, and they settled in Hebron and its towns. Then the men of Judah came to Hebron, and there they anointed David king over the tribe of Judah. When David was told that it was the men from Jabesh-Gilead who had buried Saul, he sent messengers to them to say to them, The Lord bless you for showing this kindness to Saul, your master, by burying him. May the Lord now show you kindness and faithfulness, and I too will show show you the same favor because you have done this. Now then, be strong and brave, for Saul, your master, is dead, and the people of Judah have anointed me king over them. Meanwhile, Abner, son of Ner, the commander of Saul's army, had taken Ishbosheth, son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahanaim. He made him king over Gilead, Asherai, and Jezreel, and also over Ephraim, Benjamin, and all Israel. Ishbosheth, son of Saul, was 40 years old when he became king over Israel, and he reigned two years. The tribe of Judah, however, remained loyal to David. The length of time David was king in Hebron over Judah was seven years and six months. Abner, son of Ner, together with the men of Ishbosheth, son of Saul, left Mahanaim and went to Gibeon. Joab, son of Zeruiah, and David's men, went out and met them at the pool of Gibeon. One group sat down on one side of the pool and one group on the other side then Abner son of jo- sorry sorry Abner said to Joab let's have some of the young men get up and fight hand to hand in front of us all right let them do it Joab said so they stood up and were counted off 12 men for Benjamin and Ishbosheth, son of Saul and 12 for David then each man grabbed his opponent by the head And thrust his dagger into his opponent's side, and they fell down together. So that place in Gibeon was called Helkath Hazarim. The battle that day was very fierce, and Abner and the Israelites were defeated by David's men. The three sons of Zeruiah were there Joab, Abishai, and Asahel. Now Asahel was was as fleet-footed as a wild gazelle. He chased Abner, turning neither to the right nor to the left as he pursued him. Abner looked behind him and asked, "'Is that you, Asahel?' "'It is,' he answered. Then Abner said to him, "'Turn aside to the right or to the left. "'Take on one of the young men and strip him of his weapons.' But Asahel would not stop chasing him. Again Abner warned Asahel, "'Stop chasing me. "'Why should I strike you down?' How could I look your brother Joab in the face? But Asahel refused to give up the pursuit. So Abner thrust the butt of his spear into Asahel's stomach, and the spear came out through his back. He fell there and died on the spot. And every man stopped when he came to the place where Asahel had fallen and died. But Joab and Abishai pursued Abner. And as the sun was setting, they came to the hill of Ammar. Near Giyah, on the way to the wasteland of Gibeon. Then the men of Benjamin rallied behind Abner. They formed themselves into a group and took their stand on top of a hill. Abner called out to Joab, "'Must the sword devour forever? Don't you realize that this will end in bitterness? How long before you order your men to stop pursuing their fellow Israelites?' Joab answered, As surely as God lives, if you had not spoken, the men would have continued pursuing them until morning. So Joab blew the trumpet and all the troops came to a halt. They no longer pursued Israel, nor did they fight anymore. All that night, Abner and his men marched through the Arabah. They crossed the Jordan, continued through the morning hours and came to Mahanaim. Then Joab stopped pursuing Abner and assembled the whole army. Besides Asahel... Nineteen of David's men were found missing, but David's men had killed 360 Benjamites who uh, who were with Abner. They took Asahel and buried him in his father's tomb at Bethlehem. Then Joab and his men marched all night and arrived at Hebron by daybreak. Politics is quite a negative word often. People will say things like, I just hate the politics of the place. I can't stand the politics. There's so much politics going on there. It's often a negative word. Uh, One dictionary definition uh, defines politics like this the use of underhanded and unscrupulous methods in obtaining power or advancement within an organisation. Now, you've got to say, that's pretty negative, isn't it? Underhanded, unscrupulous to uh, obtain power or advancement. Uh, You see examples of that in uh, this kind of politics on a wide scale, in in governments, you can see it in workplace organisations, even in schools and community groups, people manoeuvring things to, to get their own way, to put themselves forward, to advance their own cause, their own interests. But I think we've got to say, surely politics in its purest form, it needn't be a negative thing. I mean, if politics is just a way of describing or f- uh, the, the process of forming and, and enacting policies and actions in an organisation or across a society, I mean, if that's what politics is, just a way of getting things done and, and done in a good way, well, politics itself is, is hardly a bad thing. In fact, we need good order in society, and the Bible tells us that He puts, that God puts uh, people in positions of power and authority in order to, to do good, to do good for society. So the problem is not politics as such, but the people involved in doing the politics, because power in the hands of of sinful people like us, well, is never completely a good thing. It's never completely wise. And so political machinations can abound, uh, whether it's on a societal scale or whether it's just in our own little sort of corner of the world at work or at school or even in wider family, things can easily descend into grubby power struggles for personal significance or vindication. So the problem is not politics per se, but people. We are never good enough wise enough, strong enough to build a, a just and peaceful and prosperous society. So what hope is there? Well, our only hope, according to the Bible, is not human politics but the kingdom of God, the promised reality that, that God will send his king who will rule perfectly, who will rule over his people with righteousness, with faithfulness, who will bring prosperity, peace, blessing. The Bible teaches that actually that king has already come and he's, he's begun to reign. That, that king is Jesus, and he is calling people all over the world to come into his kingdom by, by changing the direction of their lives, by repenting, as our kids' talk has said, turning around and putting their trust in him. Human politics, our own efforts to, to manipulate things for our cause, for our advancement, it, it ultimately won't succeed. It won't bring the kingdom of God. Only God's king can do that. Now, this is the lesson that we see play out in that, uh, that chapter from 2 Samuel that we have just read. Uh, as God's, God's appointed king, King David, as he begins his reign... We see various, various men through their own political efforts attempting to influence it, attempting to uh, hasten it or to oppose it, attempting to, to turn it to their own advantage. And as we see that, there's a lesson here for us. There's a challenge, there's an encouragement for us as we live in response to God's coming king. Now the central figure in uh, this chapter, in fact in 2 Samuel, is, is David probably should say actually the central figure is God but humanly speaking the central figure is David and and you might be thinking well gee why Jonah? why do we need to learn all this stuff about David I mean it's is this really is this helpful to us why do we need this stuff about David well David is a central figure to 2 Samuel but he's actually a central figure to the storyline of the Bible and he's so important so significant that the opening verse of the New Testament grounds Jesus' identity in the fact that he is a son of David look on the screen here at Matthew chapter 1 verse 1 the first verse of the New Testament this is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah means king the son of David Jesus is is the son of David he's descended from David but that's more than just his human ancestry Jesus is the fulfillment of David And so as we learn about David, we're we're seeing this model, this type, this this shadow of the king that Jesus perfectly fulfills. And so as we get to know David, it'll help us to shape our understanding of Jesus and to, to for us to see how we are to respond to Jesus. 2 Samuel chapter 2, we see we see firstly how this new king began his reign. You can follow along on the, uh, on the handout that uh, hopefully you've got there. We see firstly how the new king began his reign. But just to, firstly to recap, uh, King Saul had died. he was defeated in a uh, battle with the Philistines. and David was grieved when he heard this news. Now even though Saul had set himself up against David, and Saul had repeatedly tried to kill David. Uh, and even though David himself he stood to gain through Saul's death, he would become king. Despite that, David continued to regard Saul as the Lord's anointed. He honored him in his life and he mourned him in his death. But then in chapter 2, we see how David, as the new king, began his reign. Notice the first thing he did there. Look at verse 1, it'll come up on the screen as well. It says, in the course of time, David inquired of the Lord, shall I go up to one of the towns of Judah? He asked. The Lord said, go up. David asked, where shall I go? To Hebron, the Lord answered. Notice that the first thing David did was he inquired of the Lord. He, he sought out and listened to God's word. Now, this had been the very point of failure for King Saul. Uh, years earlier, Samuel had told Saul that above all else, he must listen to the word of the Lord. And Saul had failed to do that. He had, and ultimately, he died at the hands of the Philistines because he did not listen to And obey the voice of the Lord. But David's reign here begins in stark contrast to Saul's disobedience. David, we see an example of humble obedience to God. David went up to Hebron. He ascended, not just physically from Ziklag where he was to the higher altitude of Hebron, but metaphorically he ascended to his throne. You see a little foreshadow here of of God's ultimate king, Jesus, who many years later was highly exalted through a path of humble obedience. God's king didn't grasp power out of selfish ambition. The path to kingship was obedience to God. Well, David went up to Hebron and he took with him two wives, which is exactly one too many, we might say. Um, just as a, a side note, polygamy is, we often you see polygamy in the Old Testament and you can think, what's going on here? Polygamy is never forbidden, but the problems with it are often talked about, are often illustrated. I think it's, it's wrong to say, oh, the Bible, you know, is, promotes polygamy. No, it doesn't. It, it reports on it and it shows how, what a train wreck it, it often is, it usually is. So... Uh, The pattern for marriage that God has established in the creation accounts in Genesis is that it's for one man, one woman for life. Jesus upheld that pattern. And that's what we see through the scriptures. Uh, David's polygamy here was, well, actually we'll see in a few chapters, it was at the center of his downfall. We're getting ahead of ourselves. We'll come to that in future weeks. So David, along with his, his two wives and the men who were with him, their families, they went up to Hebron. And they settled there and in the surrounding towns, we read. Uh, this would have likely been a few thousand people. In verse 4, we read, then the, men, whoops, then the men of Judah came to Hebron, and there they anointed David king over the tribe of Judah. David is king at last. But notice, he's king over the tribe of Judah. Uh, he's a map. Judah was the... the the southern tribe, of the southmost tribe of the nation of Israel. Uh, this map shows the Judah in the south and the rest of Israel in the north. David is anointed king over Judah, which begs the question, well, what about the rest of Israel? Will they also anoint him king over them? Before we get to that question, though, we, we see, secondly, how this new king treats his enemies. Look at the second half of verse 4. It says When David was told that it was the men from Jabesh Gilead who had buried Saul, he sent messages to them to say to them, The Lord bless you for showing this kindness to Saul, your master, by burying him. May the Lord now show you kindness and faithfulness, and I too will show you the same favor because you have done this. Now then be strong and brave, for Saul, your master, is dead, and the people of Judah have anointed me king over them. At uh, the end of 1 Samuel, you can read the, uh, the account of Saul's death. and We read there how the men of Jabesh-Gilead had risked their lives by, by invading Philistine territory in order to, uh, to retrieve and bury Saul's body, which along with his sons had been hung up on a wall. They had risked their lives to honor Saul. Uh, now this place, Jabesh-Gilead, it was the same town that years Prior to that, Saul had dramatically saved from Nabesh the Ammonite. You can read that in 1 Samuel chapter 11. And so the men of Jabesh they would have been loyal to Saul. They would have remembered how he had saved them and and they showed their loyalty in his death. They were clearly his friends. And as such, you might think, well, given Saul's enmity towards David, well, that might turn David against them. But no, David honors them. David prays for God's blessing, God's love, his kindness to be shown to them. And he shows them this same kindness. The new king shows kindness to those who would regard themselves as his enemies. Though they were his enemies, he spoke of God's love. Again, this foreshadows King Jesus, this new king who speaks of God's Love and shows God's love ultimately to us who were his enemies. Well David's king, king over Judah, but what about the rest of Israel? Verse eight we read of a rival kingdom. This new king was opposed. It says meanwhile, or some translations have, but that is unlike the men of Judah. Abner, son of Ner, the commander of Saul's army, had taken Ishbosheth, son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahanaim. He made him king over Gilead, Asherai, and Jezreel, and over, also over all Ephraim, Benjamin, and all Israel. Now, I don't want to lose you here in a sea of strange names. I know that's a real, uh, real danger. So let me try to sort of unpack this for you with some, some stunning graphics on the screen here. Enter stage right, Abner. There he is. If John Dunmue was here, he'd be shaking his head. Anyway, there's, there's Abner. Um, now, Abner was a cousin of Saul. So uh, Abner's, sorry about the, uh, the graphics here. Abner's father was Ner, Abner and Ner. Um, and Saul's father was Kish, they were brothers. And Saul's got the, king, the crown in his head. So they, they were cousins. And Abner was the commander of Saul's army. He was the chief military guy. As such, Abner and David would have known one another well. I mean, they'd had various dealings with one another. Abner was there on the day that David defeated Goliath and he went and got, got David and brought him to King Saul. And Abner was there sleeping, supposedly protecting Saul, but sleeping uh, at, at night, at the night that David had snuck into the, to Saul's camp and had the opportunity to, 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 uh, to kill Saul, but didn't. Uh, so Abner and David would have had things to do with each other. They would have known each other. But Abner was clearly affected by Saul's enmity towards David. And so when Saul died, Abner didn't rush to change allegiance to David. Instead, he installed one of Saul's sons, ish and made him king, as something of a puppet king, really, in place of his father. Because Abner really was the one trying to, uh, to, to control things. And Abner made him king over those various places that are listed there. But notice where it finishes: made him king over all Israel, which I think at this stage is the whole lot. This includes Judah. That is, Abner doesn't recognize David as king; he's opposing him. Now it's interesting that the place that Abner brings Ishbosheth to make him king is a place called Mahanaim. It means two camps. Somewhat symbolic here that Abner is dividing Israel into two camps. Those of Judah who acknowledge David as king, those to the north of Judah who don't. And I think it's a sobering reminder that there will always be those who oppose God's king. The chapters that follow show the working out of that. The the, the tensions, the rivalry between these two camps, these two sides... And it begins from verse 12 with this this conflict between the two sides in the kingdom. The conflict between Abner's men and David's men. As I was reading that before, you might be thinking, what on earth is going on here and uh, what does this have to teach us? I think that was kind of the dominant... uh uh, thought at uh, my growth group as we read through this, what on earth is going on here, and what does this have to teach us? Well, let's look at it because I think there's a really important lesson for us. There's uh, three scenes to it. You'll see it. Uh, we're at point two on the outline, uh, and it's important to notice that neither David nor Ishbosheth were involved in this conflict. This was an attempt of their of their followers, led by their their strong men, their commanders of their armies to resolve things by talk and then by action this was politics and sorry spoiler alert it failed the politicians were not wise enough they were not good enough they were not strong enough to solve the problems facing them what we see here is the limitations of human politics now begins with the two sides coming together in gibeon verse 12 says abner son of ner together with the men of ishbosheth son of saul left Mahanaim and went to Gibeon. Joab, son of Zeruiah, uh, uh, Zerariah and David's men went out and met them at the pool of Gibeon. So who have we got here? End of stage left. Joab. Now Joab's mother, Zeruiah, was David's sister. And uh, Joab was, he was in the equivalent position to Abner. He was commander of David's army, just as Saul was, commar- uh, sorry, Abner was commander of Saul's, and then Ishbosheth's army. And so we've got two rival parties coming together. But at least initially, they were coming together in a calm way. The scene is calm. Verse 13 continues, one group sat down on one side of the pool and the one group on the other side. They're seated around a pool. Perhaps this was a pre-planned meeting to discuss a diplomatic solution to the, the rival kings and the tensions. Then Abner suggests some hand-to-hand competition. Literally, he says, let the young men arise and compete before us. The word uh, compete there, it, it suggests entertainment. Uh, you might know the story of, uh, of Samson. You now, the Philistines had captured Samson and they said at one stage, let's bring out Samson to Entertain us. The same word is used, and so Abner proposes this this competition. Joab agrees to it. Perhaps the intent was I don't know, maybe a wrestling match or something. You could think of it like an ancient state of origin, north versus south kind of you know contest. And so, verse 15, we read: So they stood up and were counted off. Twelve men for Benjamin and Ishbosheth son of Saul, and twelve for David. Well, an entertaining context, context uh, contest may have been the intent. But perhaps like many state of origins, tensions were high and things soon exploded and got out way out of hand. The summary is provided, verse 16 says, succinctly, then each man grabbed his opponent by the head and thrust his dagger into his opponent's side and they fell down together. It may be like with a state of origin match where it only takes one person to raise a fist and suddenly you've got 26 men going at it. Uh, likewise maybe it only took one person to reach for the concealed dagger and suddenly 24 men lay dead with a dagger in their sides and so verse 16 finishes so that place in Gibeon was called Helkath Hasarim which your footnote in your bible will tell you means field of daggers Abner and Joab's first attempt at a way forward was a disaster and any Any hope of some sort of peaceful resolution was destroyed and a terrible battle ensued for the rest of the day. Uh, Verse 17, we're given the summary first, says the battle that day was very fierce. And here's the result, Abner and the Israelites were defeated by David's men. Notice how it's worded there though, it's Abner against David. Abner's defiance against the kingship of David, that's, that's the root cause of this conflict. We're given the summary, then we get the detail and we're told the story of the three sons of Zeruiah. Now these, three, uh, these are three nephews of David. Zeruiah was the, uh, the mother of Joab but he had two brothers, Abishai and Asahel. These men were loyal supporters of David and they were men of action. Um, Abishai was the, was the guy that went into Saul's camp at night with David earlier in, in 1 Samuel and, and was urging David to let him you know, put Saul's spear through him. He was a man of action. But here it's, uh, it's not Abishai, it's uh, the, his other brother Asahel who uh, wants to take action. The fleet-footed Asahel, it says. Maybe he wanted to show himself to be as, as good as his brothers. Verse 18 we read, now Asahel, uh, sorry, where where I uh, lost my spot. Sorry, chapter two. There we are. Now Asahel was as fleet-footed as a wild gazelle. He chased Abner, turning neither to the right nor to the left as he pursued him. As Abner looked behind him and asked, "Is that you, Asahel?" "It is," he answered. Then Abner said to him, turn aside to the right or to the left. Take on one of the young men and strip him of his weapons. But Asahel would not stop chasing him. He is single-mindedly focused on taking out the top dog, Abner. Never mind meetings, never mind diplomacy now, opportunity for that's passed. Asahel wants to take matters into his own hands. Uh, this is an unfair match though and Abner knows it. Asahel may be fleet-footed but he's no match for this, this experienced military commander. Uh, Abner again tries to de- deter Asahel, saying, you know, choose someone who's an equal match. Tries again to de escalate things. Verse 22. Again, Abner warned Asahel, stop chasing me. Why should I strike you down? How could I look your brother Joab in the face? But Asahel keeps pursuing him. And in the end, it's his own speed that was his downfall as, he's imp- as he impales himself on Abner's spear, which I take it Abner has thrust backwards as he's being chased. And. Uh, Asahel is impaled upon it, and so there lay dead King David's nephew, the brother of David's commander, with Abner 's spear through his stomach. The conflict escalates to another level. Asahel's brothers Joab and Abishai, they pursue Abner, maybe they, they, they want revenge for their brother's death they pursue him through throughout the day verse twenty four uh, Says, as the sun was setting, they came to the hill of Amma near Gea on the way to the wasteland of Gibeon. Then the men of Benjamin rallied behind Abner, they formed themselves into a group and stood there, took their stand on top of a hill. So we've got two camps on two hills. Abner with the men of Benjamin now rallied behind him, and Joab and Abishai on the other hill. Abner calls for a truce, verse 26. Abner called out to Joab, must the sword devour forever? Don't you realize that this will end in bitterness? How long before you order your men to stop pursuing their fellow Israelites? Notice he, he says, these are your fellow Israelites, literally your brothers, it says. Now maybe Joab was, was persuaded by Abner's speech, or maybe he just didn't like their chances, just the two of them against Abner with the Benjamites now rallying rallied behind him. But either way, Joab calls off his men and they went their separate ways. And the chapter finishes with Asahel being buried. Notice the detail that's included there, verse 32. They buried him in his father's tomb at Bethlehem, David's hometown. The place where years earlier, David had been anointed by Samuel and told that one day he would become king. I wonder if this account... The writer of it deliberately finishes with this detail included about Bethlehem as a reminder of what's, what's at the heart of this conflict. It's the ascension of God's chosen king. And perhaps it suggests that actually the thing that matters most is not, not understanding the, uh, the plans, the strategies of, of Abner and Job. And we might look at this and think, you know, well, this bloody day of battle and who was right, who was wrong. The right the Bible writer seems content not to, to comment on that what is clear is that the situation was rather hopeless, that their strategies didn't work, the best men of action actually only made things worse, they weren't wise enough or strong enough or good enough to solve things. What hope was left? Bethlehem. God's king would come. God's king would come but he wouldn't come through the failed strategies of men like Abner And Joab in the days of David God's kingdom would come ultimately about a thousand years later again featuring Bethlehem when a son of David was born born to be the true king whom David could only dimly foreshadow through this King Jesus the son of David God worked again in strange ways through his humble obedience, even to the point of death, through his resurrection from the dead, he won a victory over evil. And through the preaching of the foolish word of the cross, God is continuing to, to grow his kingdom as he calls people to turn their lives around and put their trust in him as king. And so, by way of implication for us, the wise response for us as we live in this world is not to look to our own human politics, if you like, to not to look to human striving and strategizing and manipulating things for our own cause, our own advancement. It's not to put our trust in human striving. It's not to to do an Abner and a Joab. Because like Abner and Joab, we're not good enough, we're not wise enough, we're not strong enough to make any real progress that ultimately matters. Now, the wise response is simply... To put our trust in god's king jesus and to pray your kingdom come it's to realize that what matters most is that jesus is god's king and he will work to bring in his kingdom our efforts often achieve far less than we hope for uh, and often what we do achieve is is weak is fragile but praise god he is the one who is bringing in his kingdom. And when he does establish his kingdom, well, actually, that's when we can know the peace that we truly long for. So in the end, the lesson for, uh, for us from this uh, somewhat convoluted turn of events in 2 Samuel 2 is actually quite a simple one. Rather than looking to our own human striving, our own plans, our own efforts, our own politics, instead, let's look to Bethlehem. And let's pray, your kingdom come. Let's do that now. Our Heavenly Father, we, we confess that so often we do strive and strategize, seeking to bring about change for ourselves, for our cause, for our advancement. We do depend on ourselves and trust, put our trust in ourselves. And Father, we ask that you'd forgive us. We thank you that you have installed your king, our Lord Jesus. We thank you that whilst we were your enemies, you have shown us in Jesus kindness and faithfulness. Father, help us not to look to ourselves, to our efforts, to our strength, to our wisdom, but to look to you, to look to Bethlehem, where you gave us the perfect king. Father, we thank you that you are bringing your kingdom through your King Jesus. And we pray that that more and more people would hear and respond to your call to turn their lives around and to put their trust in him. We pray in humility, in dependence on you. May your kingdom come. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.